Hello and welcome to Podcast of Ideas. I'm Alistair Donald, Associate Director at the Academy of Ideas and co-convener of the Battle of Ideas Festival. After months of speculation on a new agreement between the European Union and the UK government that addresses concerns about Northern Ireland and the working of Brexit, this week has seen the publication of papers that are said to herald a new political and legal framework. To discuss this, I'm joined by Lord Moylan, Daniel Moylan, Conservative politician sitting in the Lords, Stephen Barrett, a barrister at Radcliffe Chambers and a writer on the law, Kate Hoy, Northern Irish politician and life peer in the House of Lords, and Rob Lyons, my colleague at Academy of Ideas, who's Science and Technology Director and who also runs our Economy Forum. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming along and taking part in Podcast of Ideas. We have what has been labelled the Windsor Agreement, a title that is, to say the least, unpalatable to some, uh, which is intended to operate in the place of the existing Northern Ireland Protocol. We'll come on to some of the big questions of a legal and political nature, particularly uh, issues of sovereignty and democracy. But to kick us off, I wanted to get some thoughts on some of the practicalities. The claim over the last few days since this agreement has been published is that it smooths the operation of how Northern Ireland works as part of the UK, countering some of the much discussed problems, the many discussed problems for individuals and businesses over goods and licensing, etc. So, Kate, if I come to you first, you're in County Antrim this, uh, this morning. Um, what's your thoughts just in terms of what are the practical benefits, if there are, if you think there are going to be any, and what are some of the problems that you uh, think we'll be facing? Yes, I'll go into that, but I, I do have to say right at the beginning that I find it just amazing that um, our government has actually accepting that part of the United Kingdom is going to have EU laws imposed on them, uh, despite some of the changes that have been made in the framework document. And of course, reminding people, because I think sometimes they forget this, that Northern Ireland uh, had the same ballot paper and we voted uh, in the same way to decide whether the UK should leave the, Euro um, the European Union, not leaving a little bit of it left in. That wasn't on my ballot paper. Um, but having said that, you know, what, has, um, what the Prime Minister has tried to do is to say that this has really solved everything. I mean, he more or less said that no checks. Uh, no um, a removal of Northern Ireland from um, the inter being an integral part of the United Kingdom, and that a lot of the the issues that the average person worried about in Northern Ireland has now, they say, been changed. Well, one of them, which was the most um, <laughs> probably the least important to many people outside, but for people in Northern Ireland, where there's a lot of movement between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. There was, a, there was a big issue about pets. Uh, initially, uh, if it hadn't been for the grace period, we were going to have to do all sorts of things if you wanted to move back and forward with your pet. Now, um, Rishi said, all solved, no problem now with pets. Well, of course, that's not true. Um, every pet, every person coming from Great Britain to Northern Ireland with a pet is going to have to get some kind of document. It hasn't yet been said what they're going to have to get some kind of official document and they're going to have to declare that they're not taking the pet on into the European Union, which means they're not taking it 
into the Republic of Ireland. Now, that is, I just have no idea how that is going to work. And I think that's going to cause huge annoyance amongst people who really don't care too much about the fundamental issues to me, which, of course, are about sovereignty. Um, the second, second thing, which um, is, is very, very important to people in Northern Ireland, is, is the transfer of uh, plants, agricultural issues to do with goods, uh, particularly things like, <laughs> again, it sounds really, really boring, but things like seed potatoes and plants. Um, now, that supposedly has been solved and uh, because they're going to allow grower to grower. So uh, a garden centre in Yorkshire now will be able to send, uh, still having to fill in various forms, but will be able to send uh, directly to other garden centres in Northern Ireland products. You know, some of the things that garden centres sell now about um, wooden baskets and tables and chairs and that kind of thing. But for people like uh, many that I know who buy their own small amounts of seeds or plants from uh, distributors in Great Britain, they that is still not going to be permissible. It's going to be hugely expensive and difficult for that to happen. Uh, so that, that hasn't solved it. There's now a new thing that seems to have been introduced, which I hadn't realised, uh, was that if you buy anything in the future online, the supplier is going to have to fill in a customs declaration. That's something else that's just sort of in there in the detail of what the EU is saying. And then there's my, my favourite one about duty-free, which I know is, again, seems awfully trivial to those of people who are you know, very high-minded. But uh, if I'm flying now from Northern Ireland to the EU countries, as we've left the EU, I would assume I would get duty-free just like you get from London, Birmingham, Bristol, wherever. But no, we don't get duty-free because we've still left in the single market for um, goods. And... Uh, so I then, I think, probably noticed I asked a question as to then, could I get duty-free from London, uh, from Belfast to London, as I'm not in, I'm in the EU, supposedly, I should be able to get duty-free to London like you can flying from Dublin to London now. But no, that's, the Treasury doesn't like that. So uh, that has not been even mentioned in the, in the document. There's been no solving on that. On uh, all the other sort of issues like VAT, state aid, um, when you look at what the EU has said in their document, it's different, very different from what the Prime Minister said. So um, I think literally each each day we, we are going to find something new. Obviously, I was pleased that um, John Larkin, the former Attorney General in Northern Ireland, uh, very, very well respected. He was asked to look at specifically the issue of the Act of Union, which I know for a lot of people is kind of over their heads and they're not that interested. But he firmly has come back, making it quite clear that the Act of Union have still been um, you know, subjugated as, as, as the Supreme Court talked about mm. and that nothing has changed on that. So, um, I mean, I could I could go on with all sorts of little little issues that when you read it comes up. But basically, um, really, what I think listeners need to realise is that they should read the EU um, explanation of what was agreed uh, and they should not take at face value uh, sort of idea that uh, everything is solved, everything is wonderful and um, that really people in Northern Ireland should just accept that, you know, they have to be part of this strange arrangement because they're set apart, they're different and um, 
he he is hoping that um, you know people in Parliament will be will take that. And unfortunately, we might get into that later. It does seem that a lot of members of Parliament, either through fatigue, being fed up, or just simply wanting to keep the Conservatives looking united, are going to go along with it. Yeah, well, Daniel, if I can come to you on 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 this then, because. One of the common sayings just now is that perfect is the enemy of the good. And the way that this deal has been told that certainly in terms of uh, the, the, you know, the green thin and, and the smoothing of, of um, all the uh, regulations and bureaucracy that has gone uh, with uh, the protocol agreement over the last couple of years, that actually there's a fair amount of advantages in this deal. And is, is that something that you can recognise? Or um, Alistair, let me start by taking um, disagreement with you uh, on your introduction. You said this was an agreement that replaced protocol. Um, in the House of Lords the other day, um, Lady Ritchie of Downpatrick um, said quite clearly that in her view, this was an agreement on how to implement the protocol. And I agree with her about that. And she is not some rabid unionist. She is a former leader of the SDLP. So I think uh, in saying that, I'm not making a particularly controversial point. This is an agreement on how to implement the Northern Ireland Protocol, which remains in place. And the fundamental constitutional flaws of the Northern Ireland Protocol remain in place. Um, at a practical level, it was always going to be uh, totally impossible for an economy, any economy, to reorientate itself from its main source of supply and trade to another source of supply and trade overnight without huge disruption. Um, but that is what the protocol contemplated. Um, and the EU did not sufficiently recognize this. So rapidly they introduced some, um, some grace um, elements of grace periods to allow for a degree of adaptation. Um, otherwise, people would have run out of food and medicines, which wouldn't have been a good look. Um, and uh, now in this agreement, uh, they make some of those arrangements uh, permanent for good practical reasons. And they introduce some other modest uh, changes, which make this huge and impossible task possible from their point of view. And perhaps they should have done this at the outset because everyone could have seen it coming. But there's nothing that has fundamentally changed. It's still a process of implementing the protocol. And the fact that it's being implemented in a slightly more sensible way that takes account of some of the realities of life in Northern Ireland, but not all, it still has um, a considerable disruptive effect on the economy, um, is to be welcomed in a small way, I'm sure. And Kate is much better placed to explain the practicalities of that than I am. Um, it's to be welcomed, but only in the sense that you welcome um, a transition to a new economic arrangement being managed better. Um, if, on the other hand, you don't want a new economic arrangement, um, the fact that it's being managed better is, um, is, is a bitter pill rather than something to welcome. Uh, but that effectively is what is going on. The fundamental problems remain that a part of Europe is being um, governed in the 21st century by the laws of a foreign power with no democratic contribution whatsoever on a purely colonial basis. And I don't want to be, um, uh, I'm accused of being overdramatic, but the only other part of Europe I can think of that's in that position at the moment is the Donbass, 
um, and um, uh, they're being governed by a foreign power without any democratic say. Um, where else can you think of? It's, it, it ought to be a matter of outrage. Mm. Um, there's then, and it's completely incompatible with the declared values of the European Union um, uh, in their own Charter of Fundamental Rights, because they won't accept the European Convention on Human Rights because it would be it would impinge on their sovereignty, believe it or not. So they've come up with their own substitute set of rights, which they call the Charter of Fundamental Rights. Um, but it's contrary to that. Nobody seems to be remotely interested in these things. There's then the crucial question, and the reason I feel, um, you know, it's, it's too, too, too often it's thought of that this is an issue about Northern Ireland. Um, okay. It's not an issue about Northern Ireland. It, yep. it is to some extent, of course. But it's also an issue about the United Kingdom. And so it engages everybody in the whole country in some sense. It's about what the United Kingdom means. And while, um, the Uni while Northern Ireland remains part of the United Kingdom, um, how acceptable it is in terms of the integrity of the country that we should be willing to accept that part of the country is run by foreign laws. And that we should, as the House of Lords was only on Wednesday night, uh, passing statutory instruments to allow the government to erect border posts between one part of the United Kingdom and, an, and, an, and another for the convenience of a foreign power. This is completely um, without precedent. Uh, and there is no example of this anywhere in the world uh, that, that I can think of. Um, and there's no precedent for it in our history either. Why are we doing this? Mm. Yes, I think that's very useful, Daniel. And I'll come to Stephen on some of these issues in a minute. But Rob, first, if I can just stick for with the economics and, and how this is going to work uh, for a while. In, in, in your estimation, I mean, and Daniel mentions uh, the, the problem here of, of um, we wanted a new economic arrangement for the whole of the UK. And in your estimation, is, is that in any way nearer now? Or really, are, are we... Um, stuck with, with the same arrangements pretty much and the same drawbacks as Daniel has mentioned? Well, I think that compared to the uh, status quo ante, in some ways this is worse because um, the, the sort of incentives now to diverge um, from, or rather to not diverge from EU law in various areas, or if, if anything, even stronger. So because... There's, there's, I can't imagine there's going to be any uh, particular regulation that's going to be worth, to, from the government's point of view, messing up this framework. So the incentives are always going to be there to keep, like, keep in line, effectively to dynamically align with the EU and a lot of issues. Um, and that seems to me to be anathema to what the... Brexit vote was about, which was about we would have the, the right to choose our own way of doing things. A lot of the time, our own way of doing things is much of a muchness with how the EU does, because um, both the, our government and the EU are very keen on regulation. Um, but uh, the possibility that we could do things that suit uh, the United Kingdom alone, rather than having to go along with what suits the EU 27, uh, seems to me uh, that's that's going to be made harder now, and uh, yeah, all these barriers that people talk about, um, 
really the, the, this, this framework only softens the protocol to the extent that it should have been softened in the first place. I mean, we, people were talking right from the very start about trusted trader schemes and all this sort of thing and about re- reducing the amount of paperwork and the EU had been completely over the top in terms of the amount of regulation it wanted on trade. Um, and so getting back to the point that we should have been in in the first place within the protocol um, is, you know, well, you know, one cheer for that sort of thing. But the, the, the fundamental problem is that we allowed the EU to sell us the idea that there could not be a border of any description on the island of Ireland. And I think that that was, that's, all along I've always thought that that's the EU's problem, that you know, what checks are made on things um, coming from Northern Ireland into the Republic of Ireland is their problem. And what we've done is we've made it our problem but as Daniel says, we're now putting up customs posts within the UK. That is um, uh, mad. Um, as David Frost said the other day in his Telegraph article, you know, Belfast is still not like Birmingham, um, and um, you know that's you know, that's that's there in the protocol, and it remains after this framework agreement. The thing that I would like, and perhaps Kate is best to answer this a, a little bit later on is what the people of Northern Ireland feel about this, because the Northern Ireland is fundamentally a, 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 a problematic situation in which you've got a little bit less than half of the population who think perhaps they would like to be part of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, and just a bit more than half the population think they would like to very much remain part of the UK. If there was a referendum on this framework, how do you think... Northern Ireland would vote. Okay, I'll come to you in a minute uh, on that, Kate. But Stephen, if I can just come to you uh, before that, because in The Spectator this week, you were, I think, one of the first people to pick up on on something that Kate mentioned earlier, actually, that there seems to be two very different interpretations of this framework. There's the sell by the UK government where everything's fine and rosy, and then there's the European Union's version where there's some fairly startling uh, bold statements about how much the EU retains control. And I just wondered if you wanted to uh, give us some insights, Stephen, into what the differences are in the way that the EU are, is interpreting this deal and what the potential implications are in terms of especially sovereignty, actually, which I think is a very important issue here. Yes, well, I mean, I am an, in, an inveterate show-off um, and I like law. So of course, the minute this came out, I went, I went at it um, with a lot of energy. And it's fair to say it wasn't actually all released, I think, in a very um, coordinated manner. It doesn't really matter, but um, I read everything eventually. Um, it, it, it became pretty obvious. I was sort of halfway through. The, the first thing you, you read, and it might be a bias of mine, I, I, I went to the UK documents. And I was halfway through the, the sort of command paper or whatever it, it calls itself. And I just started to think, this, this isn't law. Why am I wasting my time on this? You know, if, if I'm going to be the first to publish, I've got to find something that's actual law. So, so I sort of stopped reading it because it was guff. Um, and I went to the documents that the EU published. And um, that proved to be much more profitable because I saw there the, the truth of, of, of what is happening. And um, I was very grateful yesterday when uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, the, the former president of the commission, agreed oh, yeah. with me. 
that was, it was great to have my legal uh, opinion endorsed um, by, by the former president of the, of the commission because he, he knows what is happening and, and the EU is told what is happening. To, to get very nerdy for, for, for Daniel, I think the correct name is the Windsor Framework to the Northern Ireland Protocol to the Withdrawal Agreement of the United Kingdom. And I think that would be its full title. Now, I'm not going to use that because I think my jaw would fall off. So let's just call it the protocol. That's what it is. It's a slightly amended protocol. I would say that there is a legal wrong in the protocol and the fact that it exists at all. Because what Daniel talked about, that period, the necessary period to realign your markets if you leave the EU, I think that everybody knew that there would be a necessary period in which to realign markets if you leave the EU, and that Article 50 recognises that. And that's why Article 50 says, which we are going back all the way back to Article 50, sorry, sorry to be a boring lawyer, but what Article 50 says is that, is that the leaving state is entitled to a withdrawal agreement. And yet what happened was that the United Kingdom was made to pay for a withdrawal agreement, and that the withdrawal agreement with its Northern Ireland protocol has been turned into a mechanism by which the EU will govern the United Kingdom. And that, that I think, is the more, um, with apologies to the people of, of Northern Ireland, because, of course, it does matter the, the details to them. Of course, some goods have got slightly better. I'm interested um, to have Kate raise seeds, because I think that that is, that is right. Um, things like that actually won't be easier. Their life will still be slightly different and, and slightly harder than sort of UK mainland life will be. They are, they are not. Um, in the United Kingdom in any in any significant sense. And that, of course, itself has has ramifications for the Good Friday Agreement, which I, I find, I mean, that that is simply true. And people don't like me saying it. Well, it, that, all I can do is say what the law is. But yes, I mean, that that is, is what I think the protocol has has gone on to do. And we've ended up with a position where the United Kingdom is pleading for the right to self-determination that every other state would, would be automatically entitled to. In fact, I published yesterday um, because I went I went on Slovenian radio and I read the Slovenian constitution, as you, as you do, because they, they invited me on. And I thought, I'll have a look at your constitution. And this would be illegal in the, under the Slovenian constitution. And I think it would be illegal under an awful lot of the Central European constitutions. And the reason for that is that they faced occupation. Remember, we've not really been invaded since there was a, a little scuffle um, in, in the 16th or 17th century. I can't remember when it was, um, but we've not seriously been invaded since 1066. We don't have a history of this. And I think culturally, that's why what Daniel talked about when you say, actually, this is the United Kingdom being governed by a foreign power. There is a there is an instinctive moral reaction from from most of us because most of us are reasonable, sensible people that that that, that, that is hyperbole. And you, you mustn't say that. Oh, don't, don't say that. You know, we haven't been invaded for a thousand years. And of course, there's been no invasion here. But for whatever reason, power and sovereignty, legal control of the United Kingdom has been is being given away. Yes. Well, that seems a good moment then, Kate, to come back to you on this question of how, because I'd, I'd like to look at the how this has landed politically in the, in the different parts of the UK. And, and Kate, do you want to just give us a sense of, um, I mean, Stephen's raised some of the very big and serious political challenges around sovereignty, but there's also the economic uh, ongoing challenges that we've discussed. So how is this uh, landing in Northern Ireland, both in terms of uh, politically the DUP and and, and the, the implications for Stormont, but I'm also interested actually in just the businesses and people of Northern Ireland, because it doesn't seem 
that they're getting a great deal out of this? Well, I think Northern Ireland suffers from similar to the way the UK does. That We've got a, a media, particularly a BBC in Northern Ireland, that is absolutely solidly wed to the establishment and to an establishment view. And therefore, right throughout the debate about the protocol over the last couple of years, it's been extremely difficult to get BBC to cover it in a way that is anything other than um, basically supporting the idea that it has to happen and blaming Brexit. I mean, that is what every single uh, person who goes on to try and defend, to, to having been defending their protocol and now defending the framework document starts off by saying, particularly the Alliance Party that has a, a relationship with the Liberal Democrats, that this is, you know, th- yeah, this is sort of suck it up. This is what you get when you vote for Brexit and have no, um, you know, no shame at all about implying that Northern Ireland voted, which they did, um, like Scotland, to remain, not by as big a majority as I had thought, but still by a majority. And I think they're, um, you know, so they use that right away. Uh, secondly, of course, we've had a, 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 an insurgence, really, of people behind the scenes and publicly demanding uh, a referendum on the United Ireland issue, uh, which is not supposed to be held, according to the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, until the Secretary of State uh, sees that there is a real chance of it being supported. Now, all the polls still, the respectable polls still show that they're would not be a majority for a United Ireland at the moment. So there's something like 25% of people would actually vote in Northern Ireland uh, to be um, united. And it, it's, you know, it depends how you ask the question. And some people, uh, even from the Unionist Committee, would say, well, let's have a referendum to get out of the way. But a bit like Scotland, once you start that, and particularly with the Belfast Agreement, where it does talk about after a period of seven years, you might want to have another one, you know, so you're into this. So that's why most people um, would say there is absolutely no need for a referendum. But clearly, the whole debate on the protocol and what's happening has 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 led to that. So people are using it as a very useful political tool to say, well, look, you know, the British government's abandoning you as usual, has betrayed you, you know, Boris betrayed you, all of that, therefore, aren't you better off trying to get rid of them and get into United Ireland? So there's that going on. In terms of, of, of what I would call, in inverted commas, ordinary people on the ground, um, they have been affected by the difficulties of getting goods. They have been affected by um, the, the fact that they no longer could have equal equal citizenship and that that does resonate even with I would have thought what you call moderate moderate nationalists they know that it hasn't been working but um, I don't think you can underestimate also the influence of the Irish government on all of this uh, and the way that they have also seen it as a not you know not immediately to get a united Ireland but certainly to bring about closer economic links between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And that has happened because now many businesses in Northern Ireland, having got their products and their um, uh, necessary things that they needed, have not been able to get them either, not at all from Great Britain, because businesses just haven't been bothered and said, we're not bothering, it's just too much hassle. And they've had to look uh, and get a lot more now from the Republic of Ireland, which is wonderful for the Republic of Ireland. So that kind of economic United Ireland is is something that is a is a 
uh, a name of of the um, Irish government. In terms of of the attitude to the Stormont being down and not sitting, and it's now nearly a, well, it is a year since it first uh, they first walked out the DUP, but um, ministers carried on until October, still having power to do things within their own area that had been agreed. But um, that initially, uh, you know, very people were very angry about it, particularly because of the cost of living and the feeling that uh, that they weren't going to get their, you know, the executive tried to say, the nationalists tried to say that um, you won't get any of your energy support now because we're not there to give you it. In fact, of course, the government, as we knew they would, um, operated a very useful quick scheme and we all got 600 pounds, 200 more than Great Britain because of oil, the use of oil here um, very easily. And a couple of other things that were highlighted about the, the organ donation. Um, the UK government has, you know, the that store at Westminster have stepped in and delivered it. So I would say there is a, there is a kind of feeling, oh, well, yes, I suppose it would be nice to get the executive back. But there isn't, you know, there isn't that love of Stormont and there isn't that love of devolution because over the past number of years, no matter who's been sort of running things, um, it hasn't been run very well and there's been a lot of financial problems, financial um, neo, neo uh, fraud uh, and, uh, you know, things that people aren't feeling that it's a very good um, way of, of running Northern Ireland. So I don't think that the executive being down, of course, it's made to be a big issue by by um, some of the political parties, but, uh, uh, you know, the grassroots is not hammering to get Northern Ireland executive back. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I could go on, but I think I think the crucial thing that you people in Great Britain need to remember is that the main unionist party, the DUP, did have a manifesto at the last election, which said very clearly they would not go back into government um, until the protocol was sorted. And they had seven tests and people who voted for the DUP knew that. I mean, that was a big, big issue. Uh, and therefore, they are, you know, I do genuinely feel very sorry for the DUP because they are now in a situation where they're being hammered by mainly mainstream mainland uh, politicians and, and, and establishment to say, you know, how can you possibly do this to your own people, that you're deserting them and uh, banging on about how... Um, you know, you will be isolated. We will never, basically, we will never kind of deal with you again if you don't take this wonderful opportunity. So um, it's, you know, the jury's out really about what what Northern Ireland people are. I, we, what we're trying to do is to get more uh, understanding of what the changes would mean, yeah. where they benefit and where they don't benefit. Okay, uh, and and Daniel, if I if I can come to you and and, and just ask you about the mood uh, in term in, in London and and amongst the political parties in London, especially the Conservatives, where you're embedded, because if it, one of the things that I think was particularly interesting that came out of the EU version of of what this agreement is about is when it talked about the Stormont break, which was you know, widely celebrated as 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 a real gain in the initial release, but which, when you look at the uh, EU interpretation of it, is is it's very much about um, that possibly in the most exceptional of circumstances as a matter of a last resort, and it seems like a a kind of something that 
you know, you genuinely question whether you'd get ever get to a position of the Stormont break ever being put into operation. So there's that um, being exposed. And yet within the way that it's been received, especially within the Conservative parties, and I'm thinking particularly actually of, of those Brexiteers uh, within the Conservative Party, that does seem to be to some extent, and you can comment on this and correct me if I'm wrong, but a mood, a mood of resignation, almost a mood of well, we need to accept this and and almost move on with life. And it, am I getting that right, or how how do you see it? I don't think you've got it right. No, I think amongst the great majority of conservative players, there's absolute enthusiasm and joy. They want to believe what the government has sold them. They want to believe that this three course deal. Um, is solves the whole thing and they can put it behind them and they're very angry with anyone who questions it. That's mm. the first thing. Um, there's no sense of resignation. Um, in the ERG, the ERG has um, uh, said they're grateful to the Prime Minister for not forcing a vote, allowing a couple of weeks or whatever to um, for people to um, uh, consider it properly and look at the text. I think as they look at the text, they'll find and they are finding it's not a three-course meal, it's, it's rather thin gruel. But it also has some other things in it that are great joy to the European Union, I imagine. I draw your attention in the command paper to this very ominous paragraph 52, which says that in the future, the Office of the Internal Market will specifically monitor any impacts for Northern Ireland arising from relevant future regulatory changes. This is a another independent regulator. We, we, we've got hundreds of them and we specialize in producing independent regulators. Uh, but another one that was set up under the Internal Market Act, nobody knows what it does, but it now has a job, which is that every time you want to change a regulation, it'll say, oh, that'd be harmful for Northern Ireland. So we won't change the regulation. Um, and, and that's exactly what the European Union wants. Mm. Um, and um, they'll be thrilled by that. So I think there are lots of things in it which are, it's a very thin gruel. I, as I say, I don't like to comment on the practical application of the protocol in Northern Ireland because I don't live there. And there are many people who do who are perfectly capable of explaining it much better than, than I can. Um, but um, uh, I, certainly in terms of its consequences for the United Kingdom, it contains some very worrying elements indeed, and not only constitutional, but practical as well, as I've just tried to illustrate. Nonetheless, I think it will go through. Now, if I could just dwell on this, you, you can argue yourself in, in, in two ways about this. Uh, one is to say, uh, look, this separation from the European Union is bound to take several decades. It took Japan several decades in the 19th century to free itself from the unequal treaties imposed on it. And it managed to do that. And perhaps closer to home, it took uh, the Irish Free State um, 30 odd years, 30 nearly, uh, yeah, 25 years to free itself from a dominion status that nobody had wanted and to become an independent republic with no remnants of the crown left in operating. And that took place between, in, you know, between 1921 the 1937 Constitution and the 1948 um, Act. Um, and, and so these things take time. What I'd say, though, is, and that we're in the right direction, but what I'd say, though, is that the, the, the difference between ourselves and the Irish Free State 
is that although they had a terrible civil war um, in, 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 in Ireland after independence, it wasn't, they weren't disagreeing about getting rid of the British. They were disagreeing, they weren't disagreeing about leaving the British Empire. They were disagreeing about whether it was the whole of the Ireland had to leave or whether you could accept the, 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 the 26 county solution that was offered. Uh, in, in the United Kingdom, we still have huge numbers of people who are quite blatant in saying they want to rejoin the European Union. They don't, they're not in, the, we're not in the same position as politicians and people in the Irish Free State during that period. So the worry here, of course, is that this is not a glide path to leaving over 30 years. It's a glide path to rejoining over 30 years, and it's being used as such. Um, the second thing I'd say is that one has to understand, I think the right analogy for the European Union um, is a sort of um, medieval China, uh, with its notion that the entire world was subject to the rule of the Middle Kingdom. That's what Middle Kingdom meant. Um, and, and that everybody had to pay respect to the, 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 the rule of, of Peking. That, that was the theory. In practice, of course, they knew that they could exercise power over those who were close to them. But, but in the distant ones, it was just nice if you got a nice letter saying, you know, once every five years, saying how wonderful you were. The European Union is very like that. It wants to exercise control over its near neighbours. It wants them basically dancing to their tune, even though they're not full members. Now, this is easier in circumstances where they, are, they hope to join the European mm. Union because they're moving in that direction. Um, it's easier if they are near neighbours who have no hope of joining, but, but, but are relatively poor, like the North African littoral. Um, but, but it's much more difficult in the case of two countries, Switzerland and the United Kingdom, which really don't want to join the European Union and do not want to be part of it, but have to live with this constant effort to exert power over us. So the, those people who say that we are now we, we have now re-established friendly relations with the European Union, and from that we can work effectively to achieve our own interests, don't I think really understand that friendly relations with the European Union mm -hmm. depend on being willing to align yourself with their rules and their interests yeah. and pay respect to them um, in the way that you know Peking expected back in the in the up until the 19th century yeah and then, rob if i can come to you on that point because it it the, the process of opening up this agreement and 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 it, it sets a precedent to some extent doesn't it? it 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 means that at certain times along the way over the next few years that it can be opened up again potentially and with sunak in power just now who seems much more willing to compromise than uh previous premiers in the uk with the prospect of keir starmer uh, as prime minister, it means that we have at the head of our political systems people who are uh, more interested potentially in smoothing the way and aligning with the EU rather than, as, as you were saying earlier, um, setting our own path, as it were, and, and uh, diverging uh, in, in with the ambition of setting our own interests in our own ways. So kind of how do you see that? What, what do you think might be the implications? Well, it's interesting that difference of approach between the British documents and the EU documents. Um, part, part, quite apart from the fact that um, 
I think uh, Sunak is overselling what's been done, as I think Steve in particular has uh, pointed out. The, the implication is that if you really have opened up the Northern Ireland Protocol and you have renegotiated it, uh, which I think is wrong, but if you have, then it could be reopened again to allow for further integration or for moving closer to the EU. We know that um, that is certainly the mood amongst uh, the Labour Party, Lib Dems, SNP and all that, uh, and a considerable portion of the Conservative Party in the Commons. Um, so that, that does pose a problem. From the EU's point of view, it doesn't want to say that because it doesn't want to um, suggest that it's open to renegotiating anything. That, that, um, so that's why it's saying this is all within the framework of the protocol. Um, so, uh, but I, I am worried that that mood, that sort of way of spinning it, the two sides have, have taken. If if it, a new government comes in that is more disposed to closer relations with the EU and with greater alignment and following EU rules and so on, that we will find that this is a good precedent to pursue that further. Um, so it is it is worrying. This, this is that the, they're not treating this as um, uh, in a in a way that's like this is a limited thing. This is just tidying up the mess that was left behind in the the sort of uh, the the rush that the, that happened um, in the, the run up to getting out of of the EU. Um, this this does suggests to me that this will open the idea of further discussions that will further undermine UK sovereignty, further get away from the whole further spirit of Brexit, of taking back control and lead us to be even more under the regulation of Brussels, as Daniel has uh, eloquently put it. Stephen, if I can come to you, one of the ambitions, it seems to me, of doing uh, or getting this agreement through has been, uh, at least for some people, to get to the point where we can say Brexit is done, uh, you know, that we've successfully uh, left the EU and we now have a satisfactory set of arrangements in place. But it seems to me that, on the other hand, one of the things that this agreement does is it opens up the potential for Brexit to be forever a source of contention, possibly gliding towards in a 30-year time span or or or, or whatever, as, as Daniel suggested, but you know, an, an ongoing source of contention as each of the different parts of parties to this agreement um have to struggle for their particular way within it. Is 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 that right? Is is that potentially do you think that's where we're headed? Yes, I, th I think that's fair. Um, Brexit is not done because this deal allows the EU to run the entirety of the United Kingdom. And I, as an independent lawyer, you know, I give professional paid advice and I have to say things like that to clients that they then don't like. Because I'm aware that having said those words, there'll be a certain amount of people in our country who will now be very angry at me. They will be very emotional. There is always an emotional reaction to this. But all my duty is to not be negligent. My duty is to get the law right. And mm. it's perfectly clear that this is a mechanism for forcing the United Kingdom as a whole to align with EU law. And in fact, Kate identified one of the times it's happened. So if anybody goes and says, oh, Barrett's an idiot, he's completely wrong. No, we've got, Kate gave us an example, duty free. 
So it would have been perfectly possible for the mainland UK to say, oh, yes, you can have duty free when you come here. And instead, the Treasury has simply aligned us all with the EU. We're all inside the EU again. And they did it on state aid law as well. So they, there are perfect examples where the, this is what happens. And the, this entire agreement, the protocol as it now is, as it always was, but as it still is, is designed to force a UK government to align with uh, EU laws. The EU has kept its ECJ, its courts, which is, a, by the way, a direct breach of the uh, Conservative Party 2019 manifesto. But manifestos are not law, so I don't care. The ECJ will be used to 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 bully and control the United Kingdom. It, I hope people are aware that there are very serious questions about the independence of that court, and quite a lot of of Europeanist academics have raised very serious questions about what that court is. It has a political purpose, which is to create ever closer union. So the job of the court is to get Northern Ireland into ever closer union with the mm. EU. That is a permanently embedded tension. There are permanently embedded tensions, like Kate mentioned on seeds. Some goods have got easier, but not everything is perfect. That is a permanently embedded tension, like putting a grain of sand into an oyster. It will irritate people in Northern Ireland. It will force, not this agreement, I think, to be reopened, because I'd, I'd just like to flag up that from a legal it's, it's, it might be very difficult for me to explain. From the point of view of law, the EU thinks that this, this agreement is permanent and it's done everything it absolutely can to make it permanent and binding forever. From our constitutional position, it is not permanent, but it's very likely, or there's a, there's a very high risk, that I may be the only lawyer willing to say that oh, this is not a permanent agreement and that certainly UK government lawyers will all fall in line to say, oh, yes, this, this agreement is absolutely permanent. They've removed the consent mechanism, which was the block, which was the um, the check and balance on this agreement that, that Theresa may have done it. And they've done it in an in an illegal way. So the, the Article 18 says if Northern Ireland has a vote then the UK can make a reference to the Joint Committee. And instead, what the EU has demanded the UK do is that we've already made that reference. So Northern Ireland hasn't had a vote, hasn't used a consent mechanism, but we've made a unilateral declaration that if they ever do, they'll go straight to the Joint Committee. The Joint Committee is established to put pressure on the UK government and to control the running of the UK. It is incredibly shadowy. And it, that is where what I call the big bag of sticks will be used to beat the United Kingdom. A trusted trader scheme has finally been agreed. That is a win, but it is solely under the control of the EU. So okay. the EU will withdraw or suspend it at whim. Just to say on the trusted trader scheme, of course, again, that is this idea that somehow, you know, you're trading from Birmingham to Belfast. You have to go through the ignominy of trading to, in your own country by having to actually get somebody to say that you're trusted. You know, it, it is so shocking. And I just want to remind people, because it really is important, that when we go back to the very beginning of this, this was all about supposedly protecting the Belfast Agreement. There couldn't be a hard border, whatever that hard border, they never defined it, on the island of Ireland. Well, it's actually on the island of Ireland because we've got it in Larne and Belfast and, and, and Warren Point. So that's on the island of Ireland. But more importantly, you know, the European Union, where very clever there's absolutely no about it they knew that if they could keep this bit of northern ireland and set that apart that it allows 
else in the United Kingdom so much more easily to come back in. And that is what, to me, I know it's about Northern Ireland. I know that's what people and most MPs think, oh, Northern Ireland, we're fed up with it, just sort it out. The reality is, and this has been said by Daniel very clearly, you know, this is a United Kingdom issue. And Brexiteers who voted, 17 and a half million people who voted to leave the European Union, they must, we must get people to understand just the political implications of what the government's doing. And it is the first step, in my view, for um, uh, certainly for Keir Starmer, uh, who I wouldn't trust at all on this, to take us back into the EU. And it's and the Belfast Agreement is broken. And let's not forget the haste about all of this is they want President Biden to visit in April on the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Agreement. And frankly, there are a lot of people in Northern Ireland saying, even if we like these changes, even if we think it is a bit better, we're not going to give them the satisfaction of going back into government just to allow Biden to come along and, 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 and pronounce his Irishness, which he will be doing. So, sorry, that's my um, more, more emotional um, attitude to it. No, no, I, I think that's a, a, a useful, Kate, because I, I, this is where I wanted to finish up, actually, on the question of the 17 million plus people. And it, it does seem to me that the, the last few years have been driven by what's been called the populist moment of the insurgency, the people getting involved in politics once more. And I was I was interested uh, when Matthew Goodwin's uh, always a very good substack, but his one landed this morning, uh, which is entitled the post-populism period. And he just just to quote him, he says, a new spirit of moderation, consensus, competence is descending across the nation. Britain has uh, entered the post-populist period. And I just wondered, just as a final sort of thought to, to take away, um, is that is is that right? Because it does seem very much that it's the, to some extent, the technocrats that are back in control that have wrestled um, wrestled the populace down a little bit over, over over the recent period. On the other hand, it does seem that there's uh, all sorts going on just now in in British society, whether it's the uh, protests against the way that the trans ideology has taken root, whether it's the ongoing problem in terms of uh, small boats coming in, for example. The schools just now are in uproar with protests happening everywhere. So kind of just as a final thought, how do you assess the, the sort of political moment and, and where we're headed? Rob, if I can come to you first. Uh, well, I, I think that in terms of Brexit being the, the focus of a certain sort of more, let's really say, inchoate um, dissatisfaction with the way in which uh, the country is run, um, possibly that moment has gone, which doesn't mean, of course, as we've said, that there won't be problems and issues that come constantly with, with Brexit in all sorts of different ways in the future. But in terms of that being a kind of something that, is a major driving force of politics. I think that that's um, maybe sort of exhausted, but I think there's plenty of other little fires going on, as you've said, um, Alistair. I mean, all this stuff about low traffic neighbourhoods being imposed and low emission zones and uh, talk of 15-minute cities and all that jazz that's going on at the moment is very much about a technocratic approach to how we should be controlled and how we should live our lives. Um, and I think that there's been plenty of reaction against that. The, the gender stuff is, is still very, very live. I mean, here in Scotland, we're very much at the epicentre of that because the Scottish government has tried to um, in, in 
introduce a, a system of uh, gender self-identification, which is um, clearly anathema to the majority of the population. So these things are going to run and run, and there will be lots of things, but whether there is a... Uh, something that can be a movement or an idea that can embody all of these things or whether these will continue to remain as as little fires that um, burn all over the place without having that wider um, social um, moment. I think that that's much more difficult. The last thing that I, I think we need, though, is this idea that the technocrats are comp competent because we see lots and lots of evidence, not least from the Hancock files that are coming out at the moment around the handling of COVID, that the technocrats are very much not competent. And the fact that the protocol, or sorry, the Windsor framework was negotiated in such secrecy and therefore there was so little ability to provide a reality check on what was being agreed, and they—I'm sure that in the the the, um, uh, the, the centre of government, they are absolutely delighted with what they've achieved. But those of us who are a bit more critical and standing back, um, are, and those who are providing a reality check, can see that what they have done is not what they claim to do, and maybe what they think they have done. They're certainly the idea that they are competent is um, is just the evidence points all the other way. Daniel, do you want to just give us a final thought on, on some of that, the, the current moment and, and, and kind of how... Yeah, periodically in political history, you get a great shift in the topics that, um, are, that engage the population. And we've gone through such a shift um, in the last 10, 15 years. Um, so that it, it used to be economic issues. Um, and now it's much more cultural and social issues, and you've mentioned some of them yourself. Um, the, the huge argument about um, attitudes to illegal immigration, for example, those who believe that it's a form of cheating and it's unfair and it shouldn't happen, and those who believe that we should, we have an obligation to welcome everybody who um, sets their foot on, the, on, you know, on British soil. Um, that's a sort of cultural issue that nobody would have argued about that sort of thing. 20 years ago, they, there was a generally you know, sort of an agreed view on, on controlling immigration. It's just a question of how you do it. Um, these have opened up, but the political parties haven't caught up with them. And that's, I think, is the fundamental problem at the moment. And, and this had a profound effect on the Labour Party, which found itself on the wrong side of one of those issues, Brexit, found itself on the wrong side of one of those issues in 2019 and came close to a, a sort of extinction event. And people were saying the Labour Party is going to require three or four electoral cycles. It could be 20 years before they come anywhere close to returning to power, having suffered the sort of defeat that happened in 2019. Uh, the Conservative Party drew the wrong lesson from that. They, they drew the lesson that they were doing everything fine. I mean, look, we've got this wonderful majority. We don't need to change. But in fact, what you're seeing happen at the moment is the, the other shoe is dropping and the Conservative Party is not listening to people and it's not responding to what people want. And they've moved increasingly that part of the Conservative Party that wants to stay where it was 10, 15, 20 years ago is now relatively dominant. Um, and their vision of what the country wants is perhaps what they hear from some of their voters in southern constituencies, but doesn't reflect the country as a whole. And they lo it looks as though they're heading for electoral defeat at the next election. Of course, I hope not. I hope they, they, um, they, they, they actually start doing things that 
will bring them success. But, but I think we're all agreed that it's going to be, I don't, you don't have to be a Jeremiah to say that on the current polls, it's likely that Labour is going to return uh, to government if, if something isn't done. But, but fundamentally, what I'm trying to say is if political parties don't listen to the public, they tend not to get elected. We may well get a Labour government, but there are, I come originally from Birmingham. There are, I can tell you there are lots of people in the West Midlands who voted Conservative last time who will be staying home. Uh, they've got no one they feel they can vote for. So I think turnout is going to be almost the most important indication of the next election. And while it's certainly likely on the polls that Starmer will become prime minister, I don't think it will be with any great enthusiasm. And we've seen that on certain key issues, he and Rishi Sunak can develop very common views because they have a similar managerial mindset. I think I can say that without being rude about either of them, but they have a similar sort of mindset. And it'd be very interesting to see how Starmer responds when Sunak comes up with some sort of arrangement for dealing with small boats. Because if it's based on because um, for Starmer, of course, the, the Windsor Agreement not only has the advantage, as Kate said, about Biden and all that, it, for, what it does is puts him in good standing with the European Union and with France, in this case with France, to, to make advances on other issues. So his solution, his preferred solution, I'm sure, to the small boats problem would be an agreement with France that stopped it actually happening rather than some Rwanda type thing or whatever. So I'd expect that to be coming forward at some point in the not too distant future. And it'll be interesting to see how Starmer responds to it. But that sort of solution, I suspect Starmer would line up with Sunak and say that's the right way to deal with it. Yeah. Stephen, Daniel mentioned there that the uh, political parties haven't quite caught up uh, with the popular mood. It seems that in the legal arena, the, the legislation runs ahead of the popular mood in some way. It tries to, it's almost like the law is used these days as the mechanism to try and create a consensus rather than legislation is based on the consensus. I mean, kind of as a, as a just as a final comment, I mean, how do you judge this moment just now? Yes, I mean, I, I have to say, I considered that an, an abuse of law. So we, we have got ourselves to, so I like to appear in public and only do law, and I, I only will do law. Um, that is the uh, opportunity for me to irritate basically everybody, because if if the law that I say truthfully next week doesn't fit with your political alignments, then, then I'll irritate you. And then the week after, if it doesn't fit with your enemy's political alignments, then I'll irritate them. But it, 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 is, it is a perversion of law to use law to tell the public what they should or shouldn't think. Um, and I think in the word populist, which is is as far as I can tell, and I'm only looking to define it, it seems to be defining democracy or people who have who vote the way I don't want. Um, that that is not a state. When when you use law in this way, you create a very brittle state. Okay, it, it you make everything incredibly brittle because fundamentally, law is not telling you what you should or shouldn't think. That is not what we do. But if you pretend it is, then you pervert. You end up perverting law. This is what the EU is doing to itself. This is why there are questions about the ECJ. I mean, Frontex and the way it's dealing with 
asylum. If people genuinely are appalled at the Rwanda scheme, then they should notice Frontex because I can't, I can't see any difference between them and, and legal academics in the EU who, who do support human rights are horrified at what the EU is doing at its border. I take no position. I merely notice that, that there are legal breaches to human rights being committed by Frontex. There's a, there's a, a great switcheroo going on because the EU isn't inside the uh, European Court of Human Rights, but the member states are. The member states all say, oh, well, the EU will deal with our border. And then the EU goes about breaching human rights left, right and centre. And all the member states say, well, we didn't breach human rights. This thing called Frontex did. And, and that's a legal fiction. And, I, and it, it sort of perverts law. I, I will warn about this danger of brittle states. They, they don't last. And that's why when these are embedded irritations and when they come back, and a British government will, will be told, I expect, by government lawyers, the only we can't reopen this in law. The only solution, therefore, is the single market. I will say that that is not true as law. And that, that is because it, it, it won't be true as law. And, and I worry that law is being used to create brittle states and brittle things break. Final word to you, Kate, brittle states break. But, you know, for me, the, the issue now is right democracy. And we have seen what has happened since we left the European Union and the way that it's all been handled, even the way the withdrawal agreement was handled. I think we are going to find that those 17 and a half million people, many of whom never had voted before, they came out because they thought at last their vote mattered. And it did matter because their vote in wherever it did was counted. And I think now we are going to see so many of those simply saying the whole way this politics and system is not working. Our vote's been ignored. Brexit has not been done. And I think Daniel's quite right. I think it would, there will be a lot of people who will turn up, obviously, to the Reform Party. That in itself will help uh, actually help Labour get um, a bigger majority, probably. But or they won't vote. And can you blame them? Can you actually blame them? And I think part of the, what, what now the real issue for those of us who care about democracy and care about people genuinely having a say over their lives is how we actually counteract that and how we get people at, at local level or wherever to really see that they can only make a difference if they're prepared to put their head up on the parapet and get out there and do something. And that's why I think we're going to see more and more protests and all sorts of things, um, which is why the government's trying to cut back on a lot of those protests through some of the legal things. So it's I think it's a very depressing time. And uh, it's not just about Northern Ireland. Thanks, everyone. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion, I think. Um, a depressing time, uh, possibly, but I think there's lots of uh, issues that are coming up and we're finding new ways to discuss them. And hopefully we'll be talking about many of these things at this year's Battle of Ideas Festival in October. So I'm looking forward to that and hopefully to having all you uh, on panels speaking about these things as well. So thanks very much. Uh, we'll be back with Podcast of Ideas soon. Thank you.